we're um, kind of asking this question. This is our fourth week, asking the question, who do you think you are? And we said it's an important question for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is this. When I know who I am, then I'll know what to do. So each week, I've asked you to write this down because I kind of want that to be burned into your mind, into your heart. When I know who I am, then I'm going to know what to do. My identity is what drives my behavior. I've been sharing that I became exposed uh, this last week to a to a story about a movie that I've, I've never watched the movie. I'm not recommending the movie, by the way, because I don't know if the, the movie's good, bad, indifferent. But the plot and the storyline of the movie was intriguing to me. It was a movie made in 2006 called Unknown. And it's about five people who find themselves trapped in a chemical warehouse. And uh, as they're trapped in this chemical warehouse, as I understood the storyline, one of them is tied up to a chair, uh, but none of the five, none of the five have any recollection as to how they got there. None of the five have any recollection as to who they are. None of the five have any memory of their past, their childhood. And so here they are. They're locked up in this chemical warehouse. One of the five is tied to a chair. They find a police officer in the warehouse fatally wounded, and they all don't have any idea who they are, no recollection of the past. It's an interesting storyline. As the story goes on, as I understand it, they found a newspaper, and that newspaper began to describe the story they were living. All of a sudden, they recognized, man, this article in the paper is talking about us, and as they read the article in the paper, here's what they found out, that there were five of them in there, and two of them were hostages, and three of them were the kidnappers. The problem was this. They didn't know who was who. They had no memory. And then they got word through a telephone call that the rest of the gang, the rest of the kidnappers were coming back to the chemical warehouse, which meant some of them needed to find a way to escape before they got there. The problem was nobody knew who the good guys were. Nobody knew who the bad guys were. They didn't know what to do. You know why? Because they didn't know who they were. You see, it just highlights the importance because some of you maybe feel like you're trapped not in a chemical warehouse, but trapped in a life, trapped in your life, and you're not sure who you are. And you spent all of your life trying to figure out who you are, right? And so therefore, you don't know what to do. Some of you are trying to figure out who you are because you don't want to be who everybody else said you were, right? Your parents, your coaches, your teacher. And so you're trying to figure out who in the world you are, and you feel like you're trapped in this thing called life. Others of you, at one time, you'd say, man, I knew who I was, but somewhere along the way, I forgot who I was. That's why we're having this conversation. That's why we're having the conversation. What you have opened up in your laps is written by a real guy. His name's Peter, but he's writing it to real people, and they're in a really rough situation. Now, listen close. I want to tell you something. Some of you might be able to relate with this. They're trapped in a life they wouldn't have chosen. They find themselves in a life and in circumstances they wouldn't have chosen. And so what Peter wants them to know is in the middle of a life you wouldn't have chosen, I want to make sure you know who you are so you'll know what to do. And so each week we have kind of pulled out some things Peter wants to tell them. First week we said this, that Peter wanted to remind them that if you've said yes to Jesus, you're a child of God. You're part of God's family. And so when you say yes to Jesus, you belong to his family. You have a seat around the table. You belong to a family where the family trait is love. Second week, we said this, that if you said yes to Jesus, you're a living stone. And we had to work a little bit to make sense of that. But that Jesus is this precious stone who laid down his life for us so that with our sin, we could lay our sin on Jesus. And when we lay our sin on Jesus, we line our lives up just like living stones on the cornerstone who's Jesus. And then what happens is we become living space for God. It's fascinating, right? 
Week three, last week, we said we're part of a royal priesthood. When we say yes to Jesus, part of a royal priesthood. We had to work hard to make sense of that one too, right? We had to work really hard, and we said that Jesus is the high priest. So we went back to the Old Testament. He sacrificed his life in my place. The minute I say yes to Jesus, I become part of this royal priesthood. And all that means is this. I got direct access to God. Direct access to God. Not only that, but I do the work of God. Part of this royal priesthood. And then we end it by saying I'm a bridge. I become this bridge so that I can point people to the high priest, to Jesus, to the one who came and died for them as well. This morning, Peter wants to take a step further. Let's take a step further, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't feel comfortable reading from your Bible, you follow with me on the screen. I'll read from the screen with you. Here's what it says. Dear friends, Peter loves these people. I urge you, look here a second. Peter's turning the dial. I want you to get that. He's like doing, he's like, whoop, whoop, pay attention. This is really, really, really important what I'm going to say today. That's all, that's all he's doing, okay? It's like, it's like there's an urgency. I urge you, and then he says this. Here's the identity I want you to wrap your heads around. As foreigners and exiles. Foreigners and exiles. Now, that's a little confusing. Different versions try to translate that for us to help us understand that. In the ESV version of the Bible, it says this, as sojourners and exiles. Some of you grew up with a King James version. Here's what it says. As strangers and pilgrims. Uh, The New Living Translation says, as temporary residents and foreigners. What is going on here? What is he trying to say? Let me help you understand this, and then I want to just talk. I want to, I want to talk to different segments of you in a minute. Here's what he's trying. He's taking two words. The, the New Testament was written in Greek. Forget that. There's two words. He's trying to paint a picture, and the picture that he's trying to paint is of people who are residents, but they are in a foreign country. So they're temporary residents that are in a foreign country for a purpose. So here's how you need to remember this. You're not a citizen. He's saying if you're a foreigner, an exile, a stranger, sojourner, you're not a citizen. This isn't your permanent home. But you're also not a tourist, right? You're not not there just to sightsee, buy trinkets. You're not just passing through. Some of you, I know you grew up with these wonderful old songs like, I'm just passing through. That, that Peter, that's not what Peter's saying. You're not just passing through. What he's saying is, is that you're a longtime temporary resident in a foreign country, spiritually speaking, with a purpose. What is he saying? He's simply saying this, that you, me, we, when we say yes to Jesus, I am a resident alien. Now, I know that's politically charged. I get it. But he's saying, spiritually speaking, we are resident aliens. You can put in the word foreigners if, if you want to write that in there. But we are resident. We, we set up camp here temporarily, but we're not citizens here. Now, look here a second. I want to talk to all of you. Some of you in the room, okay, we're, we're just going to have an honest conversation. Some of you in the room have, you're like, okay, Dan, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christ follower. I'm just checking things out. Now, let me say this first. and If that's you, man, love the fact you're here. You are always welcome here. Love, you don't even have to agree with everything I say to come here. And I hope you keep coming, okay? And so I'm going to share some things that are going to be pointed primarily to those who are Christ followers. Here's how I want you to listen to what I'm saying. What you're going to hear me say is what you should see in our lives. But I'm going to just tell you something right up front. You're going to be like, hmm. That doesn't look like some of the Christians I come into contact with. 
And so right up front, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. Okay, so you get a behind-the-scenes peek. And like, really? That's the way? That's what? I didn't know, because the Christians I know are different than that. So I'm going to give you a behind-the-scenes peek, okay, at, at, at what it is that when people who are Christ followers really understand who they are, they'll know what to do, and this is how it looks. Now, for those of you who would say, I'm a Christ follower, so some of you are in that boat. I'm just going to warn you right up front, because I've done this twice already, okay? You're going to leave some of you a little uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that if you are, okay? I'm asking this, that you let it agitate and percolate, okay? So we're gonna, it, it's going to rub a little tension, okay? It's going to rub a little tension as we talk about some things because we're going to just talk honestly about some things. Because what Peter wants them to know is this. As a follower of Christ, you're a resident alien. That means you're not a citizen or a tourist, a resident alien. Why are you not a citizen? Listen, this is important. Because the minute... The minute you say yes to Jesus, you become a citizen somewhere else, spiritually speaking. The minute you say yes to Jesus, here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. But we are citizens of, say it out loud with me, heaven. Now, I'm going to need your help here today, okay? You're going to help keep me awake up here. Say it with me out loud. We are citizens of, okay, now you're with me, where the Lord Jesus lives. We're eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior, He'll take our weak mortal bodies, change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he'll bring everything under his control. Here's what I want you to remember. We're citizens, spiritually speaking, in heaven. That's our permanent home. Our leader is Jesus. We have a different hope, different values. That's what he's saying. So therefore, Peter is saying, so I want you to get this. You're resident aliens, foreigners, here residing temporarily with a purpose. That's what he wants them to hear. And so he wants to make sure they understand who they are. Why? Look what he says the rest of the verse. So that you'll abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Let's make sense of this. Let's just kind of dice this thing up. Here's what he seems to be saying. He seems to be saying as temporary resident aliens, we're living in a war zone. Okay? So when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. So as a, when you say yes to Jesus, you're in a war zone. But look here a second. But you're not at war with who you think you are. You're not at war with who you think you are. In fact, I want you to write it down in your notes. I'm at war, but not with who you think. You see, you're saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Tons of people that come to Christ, here's what happens. They, they, they become a Christian, whatever word you want to use to it. They say yes to Jesus, born again, become a Christ follower. And here's what happens. All of a sudden, the minute they become a follower of Jesus, they begin to think that they're at war. But they begin to think, I'm at war with all the people who aren't Christians. They begin to think, I'm at war with all the people who aren't followers of Christ. All of a sudden, they begin to think, I'm at war with the people who have different morals, maybe from a different religion. I, have, I know people that have talked to me recently, and they think that when you become a Christ follower, you're at war with all the atheists, people who don't believe in God. It's kind of us versus them, good guys versus the bad guys. And here's what happens. When you begin to think, I'm at war with all these other people, I'm at war with society, I'm at war with culture, I'm at war with the liberal media, I'm at war with Hollywood, here's what happens. When that becomes my mentality as a Christ follower, it leads to isolation, 
right? I isolate myself from everybody because it's like, well, man, that's the enemy. Or it leads to fanaticism, right? Or, and some of you who are sitting here today and you're not a Christ follower, you're going to recognize what I'm getting ready to say. It leads to really, really angry Christians who protest and picket everything and yell at people and tell them you're going to burn in hell. You tracking with me? You see, that's what it leads to. But the the problem is we're not at war with any of those people. We're not at war with our culture. We're not at war with our society. We're not at war with the liberal media. We're not at war with Hollywood. That's not who we're at war with. In fact, let, let me just say this. To think we're at war with them is arrogant. And I can tell you one of the biggest turnoffs to people who aren't followers of Christ is arrogant Christians. Okay? That's not who we're at war with. Well, then who are we at war with? I want you to write it this way. The battle's inside of me. The the battleground is inside of me. You say, Dan, where are you getting that? Look at verse 12. He said, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. I got to realize that the war is in my own heart, in my own mind, in my own soul. Let me say it this way. I have selfish, sinful appetites. I have selfish, sinful, oh, by the way, so do you. (laughs) You see, I have sinful appetites. I have things inside of me, a battle that wages in me. In fact, there's a guy in the Bible that describes this. See if you can't relate with what he says. It's found in the book of Romans. Just read it on the screen with me. Look at what he says and see if you, somewhere along the way, if you're a Christ follower, you can't relate with this. The trouble is with me. Now, we could just stop there, right? (laughs) That's where most of my trouble starts, right? Can I get one amen in the room, right? That was not an amen that the trouble starts with me, but with you. Is what you anyways, I'll just clear that up, right? For I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. Is anybody tracking with him here? For I want to do what's right. For some reason, I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I know that nothing good lives in me that's in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I just can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but some, for some reason I do it anyways. What's he doing? This guy named Paul, he's just describing the spiritual battle inside of us. And here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, I want you to abstain. Now, now look here a second. I don't do this tons with you, but we, we need to. What does that mean? Here's what it means. This is worth writing down somewhere. It means to constantly hold back from. In other words, abstaining is not a one and done. It means every day, every minute, I want you to constantly hold back from the sinful desires that are within you. How do I do that? Okay, this is not real deep, but it's true. Abstaining from my sinful desires, ready? You're gonna be like, wow, we came here for this. Starts with admitting that I have them. That's where it starts. I have to admit that there's a battle inside of me. I've been sharing this story. I just read it this week about an 85-year-old. I'm not going to ask if anybody in the room is that old, but 85. That means he's lived a long time. He was a Bible professor. And he taught Bible at a Bible college. And so all of his students thought he was like right next to God, right? I mean, this guy could do no wrong. He probably didn't sin, they thought in their minds and whatever. And they loved taking his class. So they're sitting in his class. And one day in his class, one of the guys raised his hand 
asked the 85-year-old Bible professor that they all adored and admired, looked up to and loved, said, hey, prof, when do you stop struggling with lust? It's a good question. Young, 20-some-year-old, he's like, man, uh, this is a battle for me. The professor looked down and paused, and then he looked up at the young man, looked him square in the eye, and he said, I don't know, son, but it's sometime after 85, is what he said. You see, what was he doing? He was admitting that there is a battleground inside. I can't abstain from something that I don't admit and recognize is there. It's admitting that my heart and my mind, my soul, is a battlefield, and there's a war For some of us in the room, it's a war with lust, right? For some of us in the room, it's a war with pride. For some of us, it's selfishness. For some of us, it's contentment. And I see all my friends, and they're getting ahead, and they're buying this and that. and It's jealousy. It's anger. It's greed. Our soul is a battleground. That's why this is a little advertisement. I am so excited. February 11th. February 11th, we're starting a four-week conversation called Enemies of the Heart. Yeah, you need to be here, invite somebody to come with you, right? Enemies of the Heart, we're going to talk about the things that do battle in our heart. The battle is within me, but Peter doesn't stop there. Look at what he says. You don't need to turn there. Read it with me here. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the neighbor who has no morals and isn't a Christian. It's not what it says, is it? Your enemy, the liberal Hollywood, whatever. It's not what he says, is it? Your enemy, the you fill in the blank. It's not what he says. He says, your enemy, say it out loud with me, the devil. Your enemy is the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. I want you to write this down. Here's what he's saying. The battle's inside of me, but the enemy's after me. He's saying, be on the alert, and you got to know who your enemy is. He said, your enemy is not people with different values from different religions. It's not people who don't believe in God. It's not the liberal this or that. It's not that. It's to assume they are your enemies is to minimize your enemy, and I would also say is arrogant. What he is saying is your enemy is Satan. He's on the loose. He wants to devour, distract, and destroy your life. Basically, Peter says, when you know who you are, you'll know that you're living in enemy territory and that there is a battle taking place in you. So what do I do about that? How do I understand that? Well, that's a great question. So Jesus had a half-brother whose name is James. And I think he fleshes this out pretty cool. Look at what he says. When tempted, now look here a second, yes or no? Temptation is a sin, yes or no? Woo, that was... That was uh, mixed answers. So let's teach a little bit. That was fascinating. Some of you said yes. Some of you said no. Let me tell you, temptation, I asked the question, is temptation a sin? There's somebody in the Bible who was without sin. His name was Jesus. Was he tempted? Yes. He was. Satan tempted him. See, temptation is not a sin. Listen close. Temptation is Satan, the enemy's strategy. To get us to sin. Well, how does he do that? Well, no one should say when you're tempted. By the way, raise your hand if you've ever been tempted. Okay, for those of you who don't have your hand up, you were tempted to lie and failed the test, okay? (laughs) Everybody's tempted. Everybody. 
Everybody's tempted. No one should say God's doing it. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person, this is so key, is tempted when they're dragged away by their own, there's our words, evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, boom, gives birth to sin. Then sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. That's how it rolls. What is he saying? He's simply saying that there is a battle inside. That's our own evil desires. And there's temptation on the outside. That's our enemy's strategy. And what he says in the words that are underlined are so important. Y'all in the room that are hunters and, and, or you trap, I guess it would even work for fishermen, right? These words lean in because they're going to they're gonna pop for you. He says they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The word that he uses there would have been a, fun, a hunting or a trapping term. That what is a tra- somebody who traps animals? I, I know somebody that traps animals, you know? And so what do they do? Well, they, they, they build a trap and they put what so that they'll come to the trap? They put bait. What do they put for bait? Something they'll use the animal's own desires as bait so that I want to go in and get whatever it is. That's all he's saying is that Satan, his strategy is to tempt. How does he do that? He uses our own desires as bait so that the minute I take the bait, boom, sin is born. That's how it works. Listen, listen, this is so important because Satan is active and for some of us in the room, he's trapped us and he's hell-bent on destroying us Words purposely used. He's hell-bent on destroying us. You see, Satan is clever. He's crafty. He's cunning. He's a deceiver. He distorts. He twists. He's evil. He's awful. He's slippery. He's setting traps all the time, making sin look good. Satan is no dummy, guys. Think about it. Let's just tease this out a little bit. Think about it. Satan knows the battleground inside of us. He knows the battle that takes place inside of us and the war that some of us have with lust. He knows that. He knows that very well. Do you think that it's just like haphazard that now with simply the click of a button on a mobile device, you can look at whatever you want? You see how that works? He just sets the bait. Where all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know. I've had a hard day. He knows the battle with pride. He knows. He knows that inside we, we have this, because of our insecurity, we have this battle with pride. And so he just sets the bait, whatever that might be with, with accomplishments, awards, maybe it's compliments, where I get all these compliments and all of a sudden, man, I think I'm, a, I'm all that in a bag of chips, right? I'm like, wow, man, I really am pretty good, right? He knows the battle inside some of us with contentment. He knows that. He's no dummy. And so he just sets the bait. He's like, well, man, this would be a good time for the neighbors to get a new car. And every commercial you see tells you about what you don't have, could have, and should have. He's like, boom. Right? He knows the battle. He knows the battle inside. I I don't know if you're like me, but inside there's things that are are not bad in and of themselves, but, but, but sometimes our desires make them idols. Did you know that? Like money is not bad. Did you know that? Money is not bad. If you grew up in the church, they said money's money's not bad. But it can become an idol that distracts us 
right, takes the place of God. So all of a sudden, my pursuit of money takes the place of my worship of God. Uh, it doesn't have to be money. Can I tell you one that I've struggled with all my life? You're like, now we're going to get real. Yeah, some of you do too. It's sports. Is sports bad, yes or no? Some of you ladies said yes. Okay, no, that's not bad. No, sports is not bad. In fact, sports is an incredible platform sometimes to, for, for great things. I love sports. I'm going to watch sports to the day I die. But can I tell you something? In my life, there's been time when my love for sports has wafted over into becoming an idol. It can easily do that. All of a sudden, it becomes the primary thing in my life, the priority in my life, the thing that gets attention above all else. Do you think Satan knows that? Guaranteed he does. I can turn my TV on any time of the day, day or night, and see sports. Like I got an ESPN, I got the golf station, hunting, fishing station. I mean, you mention anything. You can watch sports any time of the day. Sports is not bad. But Satan is crafty. And so he just sets the bait. And if, when we take the bait, it's like, boom, I'm down. And all of a sudden, sin's born. All of a sudden, it conceives, gives birth, full grown, leads to death. That's all he's saying. So here, at least this question, how do we win this battle? That's a great question, isn't it? How do I win the battle? Let me give you some suggestions. First is this. I need to replace my sinful desires. Okay, I need to replace my sinful desires. It begins by recognizing I have them, calling them what they are. That's confession, by the way. Constantly, I can't say this enough. When he says abstain, he's saying, I want you to constantly be after this. Some of you have been walking with Christ 30 years and I shouldn't I be past this? No. Son of God came, lived, and was tempted. Like, like it's a constant, sometimes it's moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. So, so it's calling it what it is, constantly asking God to help me replace my sinful desires. How do I do that? Paul gave us a suggestion. Go clear down to the bottom of this powerful passage. He starts by saying, we live in the war, we don't wage as the world does, but he says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He's saying, I want all of my thoughts to be taken captive to say yes to Jesus. That's, that's how I would say it. He's saying, I'm gonna take every day, I'm gonna say yes to Jesus. I'm gonna say, I want my thoughts to be captive to Jesus. That's what he's saying. I, I've been sharing a story that uh, apparently is an old story. I for some reason, I don't know where I've been. I hadn't heard it before, but about a missionary who had gone. So if you're like, what's a missionary? That's somebody who, um, well, this was a foreign missionary. This is somebody who went to a foreign country to share the story of Jesus with people who had never heard. So this guy went to a foreign country, shared Jesus with people who had never heard. And one of those individuals said yes to Jesus, became a Christian, a Christ follower. Pretty cool, right? So the missionary was very, very excited. Yes, you know, awesome. But he came back a week or two later, and that person who said yes to Jesus seemed kind of discouraged. And so the missionary's like, why are you discouraged? You know, you said yes to Jesus. Man, it should be like joy and excitement and encouragement. And so the individual who had never heard the story of God, so was brand new at this whole deal, tried to explain using words he understood what was going on inside of him. And he didn't have like Bible words, church words. He's just like, it's like he said this to the missionary. He said, like, there's two dogs inside of me. He's like, I got this one dog, and I, I call it my God dog. 
And that dog, it like wants to do the right thing. It wants to be kind. It wants to obey. Well, the missionary knew that he was trying to describe, but he just didn't know how the Holy Spirit working in his life, right? But then he said, but I got this other dog, and I call that my bad dog. Like that dog wants to do all the wrong things, wants to have a bad attitude, wants to do things that no, it shouldn't do. And so like these two dogs are inside of me and they're like fighting is what he said. Well, the missionary knew that he was describing the battle we just talked about. But the missionary asked him an important question. He said this, he said, well, he said, that's interesting and that's not unusual. But he said this, he said, which dog wins? The fellow had an interesting answer. You know what he said? He said, the dog that I feed the most, that's the one that wins. You see, what was he illustrating that somehow I have to replace, like there's this battle inside of me. And I think what Paul is saying is, I want you to feed this part of you, this new life in you, the spirit of God in you. I want you to feed it, replace those sinful desires. But it doesn't stop there. I need to resist Satan's temptations. I need to be alert that I have an enemy and I need to resist his temptations. Now, Here's the deal. You're like, well, how do I do that? I'm going to give you four suggestions. Now, before I give them to you, look here a second. How many in the room know that the Super Bowl is being played next week? Raise your hand if you know that. Put your hands down. How many of you are Steeler fans? And are, no, I'm not kidding about that. Uh, how many of you have no idea that the Super Bowl is being played? Okay, so that's what I want to talk to, okay? Listen, there, okay? Here's the deal. I'm going I'm to give you four suggestions and I'm going to use football terminology. And then I'm going to explain my terminology so that those of you who don't like sports, don't understand football, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay? But here, I'm going to tell you, well, why are you doing that, Dan? Is it just because you love football? No. I'll tell you why I'm doing it. Because I had a lady go out second service. And she said, would you please keep talking like that? My husband started coming and he understood what you were saying today. I have a passion for men in this room. And some of you are like, man, church isn't for me. That's what the women do, whatever. Baloney. And I have a passion for you to lead in your home, lead in your workplace, lead in your marriage. And I want you to understand this because Satan is toying with us. And So how in the world do we win this battle, resist temptation? First is this. In football terminology, I have to scout my opponent. If you're going to play a football game, any good football coach knows the first thing you do is you have to know your enemy. You have to know the opponent. You have to scout them. You have to understand what are they going to do in order to defeat me. Here's the way Paul said it. He said, in order that Satan might not outwit us. Well, how would he do that? Well, he would outwit us if we didn't know his schemes. So we're not unaware of his schemes. So basically, it's me saying, I'm going I'm to somewhat know what Satan's strategy is. And you can read, the. where do you find that? Well, the story of God, God exposes the strategy of Satan. Let me just rattle some off. In God's story, he says, hey, in case you didn't know this, Satan is God's enemy. He wants to lead the whole world astray, Revelation 12. John 8, he is a liar. He is the father of lies. He deceives people, John 8. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he sometimes masquerades as an angel of light. Listen to me. More times than not, Satan shows up in church. More times than not, he does his best work in religion. He mas- that's what it's saying. He masquerades as an angel of light. 
It's not always in the shadows and the darkness. He blinds the minds of unbelievers, steals truth from hearts, sets traps, blocks ministry. He looks to devour, twists the truth, create doubt. He wants to make sin look better. I have to know my enemy. I have to know his schemes. I have to understand how he is going to try to trap me. The second thing I would say, football terminology, and then I'll explain it, is I need to listen to the head coach. For those of you who don't like football, I just trust God. Trust what about God? Three things that I'm going to say, I hope till the day I die, you can, I hope you'll get so used to me saying this, I got to trust that God loves me more than I know today. That, that God wants what's best for me, and he knows more than I do. He's the head coach. So here's the deal. Sometimes listening to the head coach, some of you played football and the head coach says, hey, go try this. And you're like, I don't feel like that's going to work. He's like, trust me. I don't know. That don't Trust me. Why? I know more than you. I see what you don't. And, and, and it's like, okay, you know what? I believe you have my best interest in mind. You want to win the game, right? I believe you know more than I do. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to try this. Even though everything inside of me is like, I'm not sure, right? Well, sometimes following God's that way. It's like he loves me has my best interest in mind. Satan doesn't. So I'm going to listen to my head coach. And then third, okay, I need to develop a game plan. I need to be proactive about developing a plan for how I'm going to resist temptation. You're saying, what do you mean by that? I hang out with young adults on on Sunday nights, and this is something I say to them, okay? I've said to, to many young adults, the time... The time to develop a game plan for sexual purity is not when you're making out in your car with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You tracking with me? That's probably going to be a bad plan. Anybody tracking with me in the room? We're just being real, right? That's probably not the time. I got to develop a game plan. So here's the deal. Write these two words down. Sometimes the game plan means I need to flee. And sometimes the game plan means I need to fight. Sometimes I need to flee. Sometimes I need to fight. Let me give you two, they're almost so obvious illustrations of of what I mean by that. If the battleground inside of me is lust and everyone else goes to bed and Victoria's Secret model show comes on TV, probably the best game plan is to flee. You tracking? It's like, I think I'm going to sit here and just fight temptation. You'll lose. It's time to flee. Joseph. Joseph fled. You tracking? If I've struggled with addiction all my life, and alcohol has destroyed my life, and the guys are going to get together at the bar, and it's like, well, yeah, I think I'm going to go fight it, I'd flee. I'd flee. But there are times to fight. You see, if the battle is with selfishness, and, and, and I have my friends here, and, and I'm struggling with selfishness, well, I'm not going to flee. Jesus said the way to fight that battle is to serve. So I'm going to fight selfishness and the temptation to be selfish by, by standing and fighting and by serving others. You see how that works? Sometimes I flee, sometimes I fight, and then i got to get in a huddle. I got to have a group. Why do we talk about grace groups and getting in a group? Here's why. Satan's a lion. You know what a lion does? Waits for one to get away from the pack. We need each other. And so so we're in enemy territory. And Peter's like, I urge you. I want you to know this because there's a battle. I don't want you to be a casualty of war. 
You have an enemy. He's on the loose. He wants to destroy you. He says, I want you to know who you are so you know how to live. But then he says something else in verse 12. And then we're going to shut her down. As foreigners and exiles live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. First, what does he mean by pagan? That sounds like an insulting word. That's just somebody who's not a follower of Christ. It, it wouldn't have had this. It, it, to us, it's kind of pungent. It, it's like just somebody who's not a follower of Christ. But, but it's interesting what he's saying here. What's he saying? I want you to write it down this way. He's simply saying, as a, as a resident alien, I'm different, but that doesn't mean I've got to be weird. Right? I, I'm different. I, I don't got to be weird. Why do I put it that way? Because sometimes people come to Christ and they deliberately, on purpose, get weird. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just shake your head. Don't raise your hand. Just shake your head like this. Yeah. Some of you are here and you're not followers of Christ. You're like, every Christian I know is weird. You know, it, I, and I'm sorry about that. Like, for some reason, we think, well, man, I've got to start talking funny and use this and brothers and sisters and whatever and whatnot, and I've got to eat testaments and get this bumper sticker and only do this and whatever it might be. Here's the deal. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about weird. He's saying we're different because we know who we are. And he says, I want you to live among the pagans. That's interesting to me. He says, I want you to live among them. I don't want you to isolate from them. He said, I want you to live with them. You see, in Christian history, some of you grew up in churches, and what what they told you was, when you become a Christian, you isolate. So you only do things with Christians. You only have Christian friends. You only go to Christian places. You only listen to Christians. You just isolate, right? Others of you, maybe you're over here, and it's not about isolate. You're about accommodate. And so you're like, no, no, it's about being in the world, and man, we just love everybody and whatever, and there's absolutely no difference between you and the world. You see, what Jesus said is this. This is so important. I'm going to create some tension in the room in a second. He said, I want you to be in the world. I don't want you to be of the world. He's saying, here's the deal. You have a different leader. You have a different outlook. He said, don't isolate. You have a different perspective. And here's how that tension works. Sometimes if you live this way in the world, they're going to accuse you. That's what he's saying. And sometimes they're going to admire you. Sometimes they're going to accuse you. Sometimes they're going to admire you. So he says, I want you to be different, to make a difference by being different. Well, how do we be different? Great question. And Peter tells us. Look what he says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor. Listen, that dude's name was Ni. Row, who are sent, <clears throat> or, or uh, the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent to him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will, look at this, God's will. What's God's will for my life? That by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I want you to write this down. It means I respond to authority different. Woo. I respond to authority different. You see, and what he's talking about here, okay, I'm about ready to make some of you feel uncomfortable, I think. He's talking about government authority. Listen, whether, ready, 
whether the person that I voted for won or not. You see, okay, this is every service. This is when everybody starts looking at me like, oh, boy. You see, some of you are sitting in the room, and here's what you're thinking. We're just going gonna to walk through this. We got to. Somebody's like, man, I'm glad he's talking about this because my guy won. And I'm tired of hearing people and this, that, and the other thing. That's what you're thinking, right? I got it. And you're right. You're right. If I'm a Christ follower, you know something? If I didn't vote for whether it's president, mayor, governor, and, and somebody else got in office, you know what? You know what he says? I want you to be different. I want you to honor them, respect them, pray for them. And so some of you are like, man, that's, that's right. Get them, Dan, because my guy won. And here's what I'm saying. I need to pray for them and honor them just like those of you whose guy won ought to have for the guy who was in office before. You see how that works? Sometimes I'm all about applying God's word when my guy won, when my gal won. I'm like, yeah, now we got my guy. (laughs) Peter says, we're different. We're different. We respond to authority different. You know why? My leader's Jesus. I pledge my allegiance to Jesus. I entrust my life with Jesus. In fact, I would say it this way. I read an article by Tim Keller where he listed about 10 things that described first century Christians. Here's things that described them, that were written about them. They didn't go to the gladiator fest because they were, they, they were, it was bloodthirsty entertainment. So they were accused of being antisocial. They didn't serve Caesar's army because it was a brutal conquest. They were accused of being lazy. But yet they were against abortion because all life mattered to them. And in that culture, you could abort a baby if, it wasn't the, if, if, it, if, if you didn't think it was going to be the gender you wanted. They were against infanticide. They empowered and gave voice to women. They were against sex outside of marriage. They were against same-sex practices, but yet they were radically for helping the poor. And they mixed the races in ways that seemed scandalous to the people around them, and they believed Jesus was the only way to God. Listen, I'm a, I, I already know what's going on in some of y'all's mind. What, what were they? Were they liberal or conservative? Were they... Republican, or were they Democrat? Can I tell you, they were kind of Republican, is what they were, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to say something, and you don't have to agree with everything I say to come here, but if your political party or platform is the primary thing that identifies you, you probably don't know who you are. If you said yes to Jesus. Because we live in a world, I know, I can see some of you like looking at your neighbor like, oh man, here's the deal. There's this, we're in the world, not of it. And so if I throw myself whole hog into this and I say, you know, I'm all about that. Well, what happens when something on that platform isn't quite line up with what it means to follow Jesus? I live in this tension. It's not just with, with government authority. It's, it's with police. Can we just get real? I mean, it's easy in our society. Oh, man, it's cosmic. You see donuts. It's set speed traps, right? You know, stuff like that. It's like, listen, here's the deal. Resident aliens respond different. It's with teachers and coaches, and you fill in the blanks. It's with our bosses. 
In fact, he's going to say later that even when our bosses are unjust and cruel. In fact, I'd write that down somewhere. I respond. You can go clear to the next point. I need to skip that. I respond to injustice different. Why? Because I have a leader who was treated unjustly. He sets the example. If you read 1 Peter, here's what he says. We do marriage different. If, if we're followers of Christ, we have a whole different idea of marriage. Uh, gals in the room, you read 1 Peter, there's a different understanding of what it means to be beautiful. I, I promise you, some of you are like, I don't know if I'm beautiful because our culture says this is what it means to be beautiful. 1 Peter 3, God says, can I tell you what it means to be beautiful? In 1 Peter 3, you go home and read it. He says, here's what I think is beautiful. Man, if God says that's what he thinks is beautiful, I think I'd be like, oh man, I wonder what that is. Because we belong to Jesus, men, we see women different. Women, we view men different. It's like we're in the world, we're not of the world. There's this tension taking place. And and, and here's how he lands the whole thing. He says, I want you to be like-minded, sympathetic. Verse 8, chapter 3, love each other, compassionate, humble. Look at this. This is crazy. This is different. Don't repay evil with evil. That's different. Insult with insult. That's different. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Really? Because to this you were called. Wow. So that you may inherit a blessing. As we live in this constant tension, we're we're in the world, not of the world. I live different, and you know what? I can only live different because I know who I am. But listen, listen. I can only know who I am. There's one more step when I know whose I am. And that's what verse 15 says in chapter 3. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. He is the leader. Jesus is my leader. He's the one I follow. I take my cues from. I pledge my allegiance to. I entrust my future to. I say yes to Jesus so that I can be saved from my sins. But here's the deal. After that, I say yes to Jesus every day of my life as Lord of my life. What does it mean to to, to revere him as Lord? Every day of my life, I'm going to say, yes, you're the leader, you're the Lord, you're in control. I trust what you say more than what everybody else says, even more than what I say. You are Lord. Every day, I'm going to say yes to Jesus as my Lord. That's what it means. Revere him as Lord. And something interesting happens when that happens. Look, it says, when I do that, always be prepared to give an answer. Why? Because my life will beg a question. If, if, if I say yes to Jesus every day and I'm different that way to make a difference, people are going to look at me and be like, what's up with that? How's come you responded that way? That wasn't right. Why aren't you getting bent out of shape about that? I can't understand that. My life's going to beg a question. So when it does, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with, say these words out loud with me, gentleness and respect. Stop. Some of you aren't followers of Christ, and you're like, I don't have any Christians in my life that have done that. And I'm sorry. Some of you are here, and you're like, I'm just exploring, and every Christian I know beats me over the head with the Bible, and I'm sorry. He says, I want you to do it with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm prepared to explain my life when people ask me a question. I'm prepared to explain my life when people ask me a question. Now, 
I'm going to invite the band to come out. Don't put your stuff away. I want to ask you a couple questions, and then I want to land, land the conversation. But, but I'd love for you to engage with me just for a minute. Don't answer out loud, and be honest. Don't answer too quick. Do you know who you are? Like, do you feel like you maybe are trapped in a life where you're trying to find yourself? You're trying to figure it out? Peter says, you can leave here knowing exactly who you are. That Jesus is a big brother, Hebrews calls him, who paid the price so that you could be invited into God's family. Today, you can know I'm a child of God. That Jesus is the living stone who laid down his life so that you could lay your sin on him. It's covered. And then line your life up with him. Living space for God. Jesus is the high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice in our place so that you could be part of this priesthood. It sounds weird, but it's just a way to say that you can have direct access with God. You don't got to come to me, the preacher, to pray for you. You can have direct access to God, doing the work of God. And Jesus is the ultimate resident alien who was admired by lots, but then he was accused and killed, and he was killed so that you and I could be citizens in heaven. You see, you might be here in in this whole series, you're like, maybe you're even a church person, but you've never said yes to Jesus, and you don't know who you are. So you don't know what to do. You're kind of trapped in this life, and you're not sure how to respond because you're not sure exactly who you are. Today, you can leave here and know who you are. You can leave here and know today that you're a child of God, living space for God, that you belong to Him, citizenship in heaven. There are a lot of you in the room, because I know a lot of you, that you'd say, I've said yes to Jesus. Can I ask you this question? Do you live like you know who you are? Does your life beg a question? And if it does, does it beg the right question? It's just interesting to look at your life that way. What's the question my life's begging? When you look at your life, what's the question it's begging? By your neighbors, by people you work with, your family. You see, I think what Peter's saying is this. There's a battle. And then we're different to make a difference. We're different to make a difference. See, what if every day beginning today, listen close, I challenge you, what if every day beginning today until your very last day on this planet, you decided to wake up and say yes to Jesus? Yes, Jesus, I'm going to revere you as Lord. Yes, Jesus, what you say is more important than anybody else says. Yes, Jesus, I am going to believe that I am exactly who you say I am. Not who they say I am, not even who I say I am. I believe that I'm a citizen in heaven. Yes, Jesus, I believe that this is not my permanent home. I realize it's getting crazy and things and I don't understand and whatever and whatnot, but I know where my hope is. Yes, Jesus, I believe I'm living space for God. I have direct access to you. It's a privilege. I'm humbled by that. And yes, Jesus, I don't gotta be afraid because I'm a child of God. So I don't have to be insecure and wonder if I belong. And so God, I pray for my friends as we finish with this song on purpose to finish this part of the series I, I'm so grateful that we don't have to be afraid insecure because we know we know that we're your children